This morning I'll be reading from the book of Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the Lord and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he could see, until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Good morning. morning. Greetings to you from Grace Bible, just as we know, down the road. And it is a joy for me to be with you. Uh, I love and most love being at Grace Bible to preach to the fellow body, but I will say this is a real treat on occasion to get to come down the road and worship with you all as we exalt Christ in song and in prayer and in worship and over the Word. So thank you for Matt, in particular, for the privilege to get to come and worship with you all. And I trust your Bibles are still open, and we're going to now look at Jonah, chapter 3 and 4. I had the opportunity to preach through that this spring, and so in two messages, I covered these two chapters, uh, and I'm still going to try and fit it in the time allotment, Lord willing. But that means we're going to skip over chapter 3 only briefly, uh, and we'll go to chapter 4. If you've got questions, Matt will answer those about chapter 3 later. All right? That's it. Okay, let me, uh, let me pray once more uh, for my soul and also as we look to this word. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God who's gracious, a God who's slow to anger, and that you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is who you are, and yet you are too the Lord who will by no means clear the guilty. And yet we who are guilty have found clearance and mercy because Christ bore our guilt and he bore the justice and the wrath. And so that's why we can come. That's why we pray. That's why we come to you now. We ask for help as your spirit indwells your people and accompanies the heralding of your word. Teach us, humble us, loosen our tongues for your glory that we would speak of you. We cannot do this on their own. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together here be honorable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So when you have the opportunity to preach, there's two topics they always say that will always bring conviction. And so I'm bringing you one of those. It's prayer and evangelism. I'm speaking on evangelism as we come to the book of Jonah. However, the way that we're going to be encouraged or challenged in evangelism, I trust might be in that, not just conviction, but encouragement to you. Namely, as we see in a poor example here, our brother Jonah, about why he didn't want to speak of God and his message, namely of mercy. And may that reveal something in us, and yet God is still merciful to Jonah, even in his disobedience here. So, I would pray that the Spirit will overwhelm us with his mercy. And that, that would be what propels us, that we cannot but speak. We cannot contain in our hearts the great mercy we have in Christ. So let's look here now to the word. Because I want to pose this question. Why is it, why is evangelism so hard? Why is the thought of maybe missions, giving our life, going somewhere, or just even being in the uh, supermarket and speaking of Christ or going across our yard or fence to mention Jesus to our neighbor. Why is this so difficult? Why do we flee the mission and responsibility to speak of him? What temptations maybe are overpowering you that tempt you to silence that you do not, that, that the gospel gets stuck in your throat as opposed to coming out of your mouth? 
Well, I think in main issue, I'm going to turn actually as we open to the testimony of an atheist that I think exposes something that's in our hearts about maybe why we're silent when we shouldn't be. Penn Gillette, the pen of the famous Penn and Teller Magician Act, he rehearsed a time when a man shared the gospel with him after one of his shows, as one of his performances. The man had waited till after the show. He met Mr. Gillette and he gave him a Bible, even though Penn was an atheist and as far as I know still is. And despite Penn's strong disagreement with the message of the book he received, he says, he recounts this, he was touched. And here's what he said. He said, I've always said that I don't respect, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because that would make it socially awkward, How much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? But with this guy, Penn concluded, he was polite, he was honest, he was sane. And then he notes this, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. Wow. Could it be that we don't say anything because we don't care? Or worse, that we actually hate our neighbor, that we won't speak of them. No doubt, as we turn to this text that we just read, that's what we hear with Jonah, how he detested the Ninevites, these Assyrians. This is why he wouldn't speak up. But what this book does then, it unmasks for Jonah and us this underlying posture or perspective that's at the root of Jonah's and perhaps your silence about Christ. It's namely this, we are selfish. And actually, if we could scratch a little bit deeper, deeper, we are selfish because we are self-righteous. Which means that we are no longer empathetic. We can't relate to the plight of our neighbor sinner. Because we've forgotten that we too are sinners in every way as desperate as the farthest soul from Christ. The unbelieving world needs to hear the gospel so desperately, but so do we daily. We need to again hear on our lips to rebrand the gospel truths on our hearts that we too are great undeserving sinners, but that Christ is a greater savior. Is this not true? Remembering this will soften our hearts and it will loosen our tongues that we might speak about Christ. Don't be self-righteous. Repent and speak up about God's mercy in Christ. You need it, and so do they. Don't be self-righteous. Repent and speak up about Christ. You need it, and so do they. We need to speak up about his mercy because first, we'll see here in the text, his mercy answers his perfectly righteous wrath. God's mercy answers his perfectly righteous wrath. Look at Jonah 3. It's a kind of summarize for you where you would be if you would go even read the whole whole book. Jonah begins with God's word dropping in on this prophet, giving him a mission and giving him a message. Verse 2 of chapter 1, actually. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But of course, you probably know the story. Jonah doesn't heed the call, does he? And he didn't just ignore God's mission, just go on with his merry way, pretending, oh, everything is just the same. But rather, he flees headlong, going the the exact opposite direction. Now, verse 3 of chapter 1. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from, that is away from the presence of the Lord. So instead of obeying and going to Nineveh, he tries to catch a boat to Tarshish, the very far western end of the Mediterranean Sea, going as far as he possibly physically can from God's mission and directive. But God, but God wasn't content to leave his prophet running. And so first, God hurls a great storm after Jonah's ship. And eventually this leads to Jonah being cast overboard into the sea. And then floundering in the sea, sinking down to his depths and to death, Jonah, finally in full desperation, calls out to God in prayer, calls out to God in rescue. Like you read in chapter 2 now, verse 7, he says, as he recounts this, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He he turned to God because he knew there was nowhere else to turn. He was desperate for mercy. And then as he's caught up in the giant fish, Jonah responds with thankful praise. Verse 9 of chapter 2. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is where he found it fresh. It's not because of him. It's all because of who God is. So, amen, right? Desperate for grace. Even in his great rebellion, he, he has no right to God's mercy, he has no claim on this, and yet he's here delightfully surprised by mercy, and he revels in it, he rejoices in it, that God can even save a hard-hearted prophet. And so he responds with praise. He tasted and saw that the Lord is good. And, and this gratitude and now fresh love and awareness of mercy leads him to obedience, which is now where we come to chapter 3. As the fish spews Jonah on the shore, God's word once again comes and Jonah gets another crack at obedience. And what might seem like an astonishing thing, that is, despite how wicked and torturous the Assyrians were, we'll talk about that, especially as they had been to Jonah's fellow Israelites, shockingly, when Jonah actually gives the message, they repent. They turn from their evil. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. And here's God's response. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah obeys and preaches, and these wicked sinners, evil, torturous sinners, repent. They turn, starting with the, or led by their king, And God's merciful. He turns from the punishment that he said he would do. His mercy reigns over it. I mean, that's my kind of ending, right? It's a sad story that then has this glorious, merciful conclusion. God's mercy overwhelms his wrath as people turn from their sins. Now, let me stop just for a quick second and pose that question. Friend, have you yet turned from your sins and turned to Christ? Have you turned to find mercy? If you are not yet in Christ, God's wrath still remains upon you. The gospel of John and Jesus tells us so. But you can turn and find mercy with him, even right now in your seat. Now, brothers and sisters, that great story of God's wrath being overwhelmed by mercy, it can be replayed 
over and over and over again as sinners hear of the judgment they are under that then they can turn and find mercy at Christ's feet. We can have an instant replay, so to speak, of this greatest of messages. But for them to hear that, what, ha- what needs to happen? The prophets, the people, what do they got to do? We got to speak. We have to speak. And we have to be forthright, even with the bad news. Because that will drive them to the only place they can find mercy, like Jonah in the sea. Drive them to the Lord because salvation's with him. God has entrusted this good ending, this good news to you. Will you speak up? Because it's the only hope that they have. We speak up about his mercy because his Mercy overwhelms his righteous wrath. We also speak up about his mercy because his mercy, his mercy silences our self-righteous anger. His mercy silences our self-righteous anger. Look at the first four, four verses now of Jonah chapter 4. Or excuse me, the first five verses of Jonah 4. Now he's preached the gospel. The city repents. God shows them mercy. And so if you were Jonah, how might you feel? How how would you have felt if you had wandered in a strange land, a dangerous land, people that had threatened and done evil things to your people, and and you're hardly even one day into your three-day mission trip, and then a great revival breaks out. Scores of people, you know, like our dreams that we create when we share the gospel, they fall down at our feet. Crying out for mercy with God. The whole town, this ancient metropolis, converts, turning to the Lord under your ministry. I mean, what better news could there be than this? What a joy and privilege, right? Well, that's not how Jonah sees it. It's not how he sees it at all. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Most literally, the Hebrew reads like this, that he was eviled with a great evil. Something a bit more intelligibly, it was the greatest of evils in Jonah's eyes that the Ninevites repented. He wasn't glad. He wasn't happy that scores of pagans found mercy. He was raging. He was angry. He became furious. This is the very thing he didn't want to happen. And now we come to the answer in this book as to why. Why did Jonah in the very beginning, because he doesn't tell you in the beginning of this book about why he fled. The word comes and Jonah runs. Why? Well, now we come to the answer. Why did he rebel in the first place? And he tells us in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord, you know, with this great anger on his heart and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why did he flee and run from God? Because this is exactly what he did not want to happen. No way that these brutal, evil Assyrians get mercy. Couldn't stand it. If God forgives them, because what does he understand? If God forgives them, what won't they get? They won't get justice. That they so justly deserve. He's sick with rage at the thought and the evident view of them getting mercy. Now, why was Jonah so anti-mercy? Especially about these Ninevites or Assyrians. 
Well, we know from history, they were savage conquerors. They dismembered and impaled victims. They decorated palaces with gruesome pictures of their brutality. Furthermore, they had done such acts of evil against the Israelites themselves, against the likes of probably Jonah's grandparents and granduncles and other relatives. Perhaps even his own parents had been under the sword of the Assyrians. Jonah and his fellow Israelites had felt the evil rule and cruelty of the Assyrians. But note what the text highlights for us directly about these Ninevites is that they were evil. Evil of such a sort that it piled up like a dung heap before God's nostrils. Remember, we read it already, but go to chapter 1, verse 2 again, where it reads, He tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. These Ninevites were bad to the bone for generations. And a few days of mourning and a few days of seeming repentance and they get full mercy. What is happening, God? What are you doing? This is not right. This is wrong. This is unjust. This is an outrage. How would you ever let these wicked people go free? How could you forgive them? Now, before we move on in our own self-righteous disgust of Jonah, do we have a Jonah streak in our own hearts? Would you rejoice and be glad when a murderer finds mercy at the cross of Christ? Well, what if that murderer killed someone you loved and not just killed them, but abused them and violated them? And then what if the governor pardoned them? How might you respond then? Would you plead with God that they too would find mercy? Or would you clap louder if they got justice? Mercy was the very last thing Jonah wanted in all the world for these Ninevites. And here's the most self-condemning thing here. Look at Jonah's explanation, why he tells us he didn't go at first. Again, back to verse 2. He said, of chapter 4, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For, Pastor Matt already highlighted the connections here of, of this kind of logic, but for, so here comes the reason, here's why I fled. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't go because he knew precisely what God is like. I knew you were merciful. I knew you would just go and do something like this and forgive. I knew you were good. I didn't want them to find it. That's why I was silent. That's why I ran. That's why I fled. It's not good for those kinds of sinners to find mercy, Jonah thought. Now, the precise way that he describes God here in verse 2 of chapter 4 clues us into where he, get this, he got this information from. Where did he learn that God was like this? Well, the, well, this description, he's quoting almost verbatim from Exodus 34. You can either turn there with me for a moment or just listen very closely. But, but this is such a key chapter in the whole Bible and especially, of course, the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34. 
This was a time when Israel was in desperate need for mercy themselves. If you recall, God had just given them the law, in particular the Ten Commandments, and it didn't take long, and they broke at least the first two, if not more, immediately when they did what? They made that golden calf, didn't they? And so for their treachery, God was prepared to wipe them out. Like we read in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10, it says, Now therefore let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot and I may consume them. And so it is in the face of their disobedience, in Israel's most desperate hour, as they've turned from God, he shows his true colors. He shows his mercy. And this is what we find in chapter 34. He shows his glory there to Moses. And the picture of God showing his glory to Moses in the face of Israel's desperate need, the picture of his glory is not about some blazing light. It's not about a rainbow. It's not about lasers and smoke and mirrors. Rather, the scene when God shows his glory, it's dominated by a voice. It's dominated by words. This is how God declares and shows his glory. The scene is dominated by a proclamation. Here it is, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed before Moses. And here's what was said. The Lord, the Lord, that's his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, ideas probably thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But doesn't that sound very familiar to what we see in Jonah? If you flip back there now to Jonah chapter 4, what did Jonah say? What did he know about God? Namely this, he says, I knew that you were a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Where did he learn that? He learned it from the book of Exodus. He learned it from God revealing his name and his word to Moses. And God's people since that time had tethered themselves, bound themselves to this view of God because there is no hope without it. So you see these words repeated all over the Old Testament. Like you'll find this declaration reiterated in the prophets, like in Joel chapter 2 verse 13. The prophet calls to the nation and says, return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Or again, Israel praises God in the Psalms. Why? Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The point is this portrait of God captured God's people's hearts. It was their triumphant hope as their lives kept smacking into the reality of their sinfulness. Hope cannot rest in our sinful selves. And so then to discover that God's actually like this, that he is gracious, that he's merciful like this, this is glorious good news, isn't it? And that must be held on to 
It's something that they can't let go of. It's something they had memorized and drilled into their minds and hearts. But tragically, too often, God's people can think, that means just for us. That means just for me. Because the mercy of God to such sinners like the Ninevites or Assyrians or perhaps our own neighbors makes Jonah very angry, angry enough to die. Back to Jonah, now chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'd rather die than live in a world like where sinners like these find grace. I can't stand it, God. It makes me sick. I remember the first time I heard about God's grace. I was a high school student. I think it was a freshman. I was in my intro to psychology class. And for some reason, the, the gospel came up as a topic of conversation, namely because of one of the students in the class. And the, the, the gospel of grace just offended me right from the start. I don't remember the topic, but again, this meek young girl piped up talking about how she was a Christian. And she wishes to love and forgive people like God does, freely. And she noted even that God forgives freely because of Jesus' death for sinners. And at the time, the budding atheist that I was, I went on the attack, offended with such things that she held precious. I called them foolishness. You're telling me, this is right where I went, if Hitler had prayed to Jesus for forgiveness on his deathbed, then all would be forgiven. The millions he murdered would be just like water under the bridge. And now he'd be in heaven. And hesitantly, she admitted, yes. And the teacher and I scoffed. What folly, what craziness. You poor thing being duped by such a story. And more than that, what evil, I thought. What injustice. That's not fair. That's outrageous. In other words, I had no understanding of grace. And most evidently, I had no idea how desperately I needed it. I looked at the gift of God in Christ, my only hope for life, and I mocked. Angered by grace. I mocked the most precious gift of God. But to all this, turning now to the text, how does the Lord respond to such accusations, mockings, and complaints from an obstinate and evidently very moody prophet? Well, can you guess what he does? The Lord simply poses a merciful, gentle question back. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This seems for the moment to silence Jonah's self-righteous anger. He, he doesn't have an answer. I think he perhaps knows the answer and he just doesn't say anything. What can he say to that? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. He goes outside the city to pout and wait. What's going to happen? Just maybe their repentance will fail. Maybe they'll relapse. Maybe God's wrath is going to come upon them after all. And of course, the great tragedy of this whole Jonah story is this. Out of hate, he disobeys God by refusing to give the Ninevites, 
God's merciful word. And then he is thrown in the sea. He's perishing in the drink because of his disobedience. And he in his desperate hour cries out to God for mercy. And God gives him grace. Save me, O Lord. Save even me. And God saves him. Even this obstinate prophet who should know better, right? And he rejoiced in it. He reveled in that grace. And yet, though he knows how good the grace of God is, he can't stand the thought that wicked people like them would have it. This text reflects like a mirror, doesn't it? Rick, aren't you doing the same thing when you will not open your mouths about me in the gospel? Do you hate them? Do you hate your neighbor? Do you hate the nations? Why won't you speak up? Are you stuck, angry, patiently, just thinking they don't deserve God's mercy, but that you do, you see? Jonah appears to have forgotten that he too is a woeful sinner. He's self-righteous. He thinks he's deserving of God's goodness, certainly more than others. He's not surprised by God's grace to himself in the end. But he's shocked that it would come upon them. He has forgotten that were it not that God truly is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to sinners like wayward prophets and cruel oppressors. We're all in the same boat. But with Christ, there is either hope for sinners or there is not. With Christ, there's hope for all or there's no hope for you. This is what Jonah has forgotten and let us not forget. We must speak, not only for Christ's sake, that is for them, but also for our own hearts to hear it, that there is mercy for sinners because we need it desperately. Let us not forget grace. Let us speak up about it. Thirdly, for this reason, his mercy unmasks our self-righteous folly. His mercy unmasks our self-righteous folly. Jonah 4, verses 6 to 11. So just as the Lord leveraged creation to rescue Jonah with the storm and the fish, now the Lord appoints his creation again to rescue Jonah, but instead from drowning in the sea, the Lord rescues him from drowning in a sea of self-righteousness as opposed to further calcifying his heart. Look at verse 6 now of chapter 4. It opens with the same word that we saw at the end of chapter 1, namely the word appointed. We find this word again now several times as we continue through this section now in verse 6. Here's what it reads. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I mean, what do we find out again about our God? Is he not gracious to this hard-hearted prophet? Jonah won't even talk to God about this. He's pouting in his tent, trying to make sure, as he slams the door supposedly in the house, to make sure God knows he doesn't like this. He's like a child storming off in his room. He's not happy, and he wants to make sure everybody knows it, especially God Would not God's outrage at Jonah's 
self-righteousness and ingratitude and unthankfulness, wouldn't that be just if God was outraged with Jonah? I mean, are you serious, Jonah? You're really going to pout on a hill about sinners getting mercy when just a couple days ago I saved you out of the sea? You're unbelievable, Jonah. That's probably what I would have said. (laughs) But none of that from him. What does God do? He gives him more grace. He bends his creation to meet Jonah's very felt need. Look at this. He appoints by his sovereign will and power this plant to quickly rise up and provide gracious shade for Jonah's head. Even as the text reads, the Lord pointed this plant to save Jonah from his discomfort, literally to deliver him from his evil. It could either be in the sense of his great grief or displeasure or the refuge from the heat, but the heat hasn't come yet. That's probably his great grief. God meets Jonah right where he is, with his hard-hearted heart and all, heaping on more grace. On a side, are these not great lessons as we try and parent our children in the gospel? Discipline's most necessary, but there's more than one tool in the parenting training belt, so to speak. God, sometimes he uses storms, and sometimes he uses shade-giving plants. And both come out of an an abounding, steadfast love out to win hearts back to him. Parents, be careful not to exacerbate or exasperate your children. Be careful in the name of justice and discipline. Do not forget about grace and kindness. As we see with our God, it's it's not an either or, it's a both and in this case. No doubt this plant of grace ministers to Jonah right where he hurts. You see Jonah's reaction. It says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And it's interesting, the grammar in the original language, it's here saying that how livid and raging he at was God. Jonah now has that same kind of delight in this plant that God gave. But consider this, what appears to be the reference point for whether Jonah is angry or whether he's happy. What makes him angry or happy? What's the reference point? But who? Himself. He's focused on himself. This is what God is trying to deprogram out of Jonah, trying to teach him. He's bending creation to teach him and show him to move Jonah's hard, selfish heart. And so first, God takes away the plant, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And next, God turns up the heat, literally, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed, again, the same word that we've been seeing, a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And this all brings Jonah to respond in that very same way how he had retorted in verse 3. He asks God to take his life, verse 8. And he asked that he might die and said, is it better for me to, it is better for me to die than live. Again, oh, the sad irony. The drowning prophet who cried out for rescue, for God to save his life, now laments and pouts and wishes for death, thinking it's actually better to be dead than live in a world like this where things don't turn out Jonah's way. When I compare myself with those evil Ninevites, 
There's no way they deserve mercy. I may not be great, Jonah's thinking, but I'm not bad like them. There are some people just too evil for God's grace. But still teaching. The Lord revisits that same question right back at Jonah, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Can you see it yet, Jonah? Are you right to be angry? This, said, this time, though, instead, Jonah, instead of just walking away, he replies and di- he digs in with defiance. Verse 9, and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Come on, dude. Seriously? Angry enough to die? Again, God has far more compassion than I do. He replies with just one more merciful, though complex question. And this is the punchline of this whole plant, worm, wind incident, really the whole book. The Lord, as we see, he's in control of all this. That's the point of this word appointed. He's setting this all up to help him see the folly of his self-righteous, selfish anger. And he highlights it by making this comparison between Jonah's underlying concern for a mere plant. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You cared to tears about this little plant, Jonah. He's highlighting how inordinate was Jonah's concern for this little plant. Not only is it just a plant, he didn't do anything to make it. He didn't grow it. He didn't work for it. He didn't invest any labors into it. It just came. It didn't belong to him. Plants and flowers die. That's what they do. It can happen so quickly. But what folly to entrust one's heart to such a thing. To hang your joy and your satisfaction on something so insignificant and so temporary. And it was this comparison about what he values that underscores how twisted Jonah's lens for looking at the world had become. So Jonah, you wish to die over a single day shrub and you're angry with me because I showed mercy to a whole city? Verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? (laughs) The interpretive question here is what is meant by the persons who do not know their right from their left could be referring that there's that many children in this town who have not yet matured enough to know their right from their left hand. That's possible, though the word here in the Hebrew for persons means man or mankind more generally. This would be the only place where it refers to exclusively children. Thus, I think it's probably speaking about there's that many people in the city altogether, men, women, and children. And what does it mean then that they don't know their right from their left? It means that they're just ethically naive people. A people who, morally speaking, are so blinded they can't even distinguish between the good and the bad, the right and their left. They're so given over to sin, they're like idolatrous, murderish fish in a dark sea of evil. They don't know up from down. Now, understand from this, this spiritual blindness, this this 
ethical naivete that doesn't spare them judgment. God brought a message of total destruction after all. Their spiritual ignorance is not any excuse. But God uses this expression to bite right back at Jonah. Jonah, can't you see your hypocrisy? It exposes his self-righteous folly to be so angered, so saddened at the death of a single-day plant that that would weigh heavier on the scale of his mind than 120,000 but blinded souls. Should I not pity them, Jonah? I pitied your soul. But no, the prophet insists. With his hardened heart, he was angry, angry enough to die. That's what we read in verse 9. Now, what's really interesting, as we tie this to the New Testament, when those words from Jonah that he spoke, when they, when they come over to the Greek language, it was written in Hebrew, it was probably spoken in Hebrew, when it comes, comes over to the Greek language, it was translated like this, something like, I have been sorrowed exceedingly, even unto death. The, the, the ancient Greek translators, they understood from this context, this wasn't simply rage and anger, this was a grief, a raging sadness, if we could put it that way of God's mercy upon all these evil Ninevites. And I bring this up because curiously, those are the very same words on the lips of our Savior when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the brink of his betrayal, Jesus confides in his most trusted disciples this. Matthew 26, verses 37 and 38, read, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He quotes Jonah. And of course, again, the contrast between our God and this prophet are so stark, aren't they? Jonah was brought to raging sorrow because such wicked sinners were spared and shown mercy. Jesus, on the other hand, he didn't become sorrowful and troubled because sinners might get mercy. He was troubled and sorrowed because he knew sinners would never get mercy unless he drank that cup. The terrifying cup of the wrath of God. And so he prays three times. The first answer, let the Lord's will be done. He comes back twice more in the garden. Why was Jesus so sorrowful? Why was he so troubled about this? Even to death, it was this. To stand in your shoes as a sinner before a holy God. It almost crushed him, the thought of it. What troubled Jesus? To stand with sin before the perfectly holy God. That's what brought Jesus to use Jonah's words, but with a totally different way and concern. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Can you for a moment sense the doom you had been under outside of Christ? And even gripped by that horror, the terrifying prospect of drinking that cup, he obeyed. He drank, 
and he consumed every last drop so that all of his people for all of their sins would never take a sip of it. He drank, he obeyed so that wicked, guilty, failing and falling, fearing sinners, us, you see, would be secured mercy. But you have to see that you need it. You have to want it. You have to want him and come to him by faith. But if you come, if you repent, even like those detestable Ninevites or that self-righteous prophet, it's not too late to find grace with a God like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who relents from disaster. Christ loves sinners, his enemies, He's loved you if you're in Christ. Can you not love others? Can you not speak up for him? That's the looming question that hangs over the ending of this book for us. Can you love like he's graciously loved you? Which means he spoke good news to you. Speak up for Christ and for his glory, Kingsway. From what I can tell, excel still more in it. For his glory, as more and more sinners in Richmond and over the world find mercy at Christ's feet, to his glory and praise. And more and more for his glory, as we come more and more to grips with how badly we needed it and still do. Let's glory in that mercy and let's tell all the world. Let's thank him for it. Let's pray. Oh God. Oh God, you are holy. We have no claim or right before you except one excellent claim. The blood and righteousness and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he died for our sins in accordance with your promises in the scriptures. That he bore the wrath we deserved. And now, O Christ, you live and you're interceding for all your people right now. And so forgive us, we cry, where the gospel has been stuck in our throat and our pocket. And we have not spoken, we have not shared as we ought. Forgive us for our, our lack of faithfulness and an assurance of the mercy that we have because of Christ. Delight your people in grace that we would speak it. Not because we are good enough, that we've done enough, but because you did it all. Overwhelm us with your mercy that we would be heralds of it for your glory. Amen.